Well, I don't know if that clock back there is going to work to my disadvantage or your disadvantage, because as far as I'm concerned, I just see 11, and that means I have plenty of time. <laughs> just keep going and going and going. I'll ask you a question this morning. What comes, what comes to mind when you hear the word privacy? Is it something that you used to have, maybe before you were married, maybe before you had kids? Is it something that the government just seems to be taking more and more away from you? Or is it something that you just, you wish you had, but you don't really have it? Privacy is something that Americans have come to value more and more in recent years. It's more than just something that we would like to have. It's become a right that we believe that we have. An article in Wired magazine says this, Privacy is an inherent human right and a requirement for maintaining the human condition with dignity and respect. And with all the recent advancements in technology, the ability to keep your information private has just become more and more difficult. Some would argue that it's actually an impossibility these days. Privacy is threatened on all sides. Personal information, it's hunted down, it's hacked, it's tracked, often by criminals who wish to use your information to their advantage, or sometimes they just want to get at you and hurt you. We all become more cautious, cautious with our social security numbers, our bank accounts, our credit card numbers, our usernames and passwords, and we become more and more careful with what we write in emails, with what we text people, with what we post to social media. We become more cautious with how we put in our ATM pin in at the gas pump, because someone might be watching with some type of photo lens and looking to see if they can steal our information. But we're not just on a state of alert uh, from people who would do us harm. We're also on guard from those who would protect us, right? With the rise of global terrorism and uh, public acts of violence, people in authority have come to want to look and invade our privacy more and more and more under the, the, the name of protection, Right? And so we, we encounter this all the time. We, we encounter it when we go through TSA at the airport, when we have our bags opened and sifted through in places like the Magic Kingdom, right? We have our privacy maybe violated a little bit sometimes when we get a new job and have to have our background checked or, or even in our own backyards wondering if maybe somewhere up there some type of drone is flying overhead. Am I not even have, have, do I not even have privacy in my own backyard? How does that make you feel? What if I told you that no matter what level of privacy you think you have, your life is actually completely exposed before the most powerful force in the universe? And you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God. That's why we're here this morning. David talks about this in Psalm 139. He has this keen awareness of his exposure before an all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, holy God. And the first thing I want us to pull out of Psalm 139 this morning is this. David knew he couldn't escape God's knowledge of him. Look at verse 1 again, Psalm 139, verse 1. He says, Oh Lord, you've, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. 
You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in before, behind and before you lay your hand upon me. And he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I can't attain to it. See, David understands there is nothing about him that is private. There is nothing that he can keep secret when it comes to God. God knows where he's at. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's thinking. God knows what he's going to say before he even says it. See, God saw him from every angle. David says, he hemmed me in. He was completely surrounded by God with nowhere to go. There was nowhere to escape. Have you ever felt that way? It can be a very uncomfortable feeling. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't really want anyone to know everything about me. And I don't often volunteer information. It's one of the reasons when a survey is thrown my way, I just go, I don't know if I want to fill this out. I'm looking at the question, okay, maybe I can fill up my name. Uh, but sometimes I'm even cautious with that. I don't want to give out anything that someone might be able to use against me. I don't want to give out my financial information. I don't want to let people know my eating habits. I don't want them to know my health information or even my shopping habits. Uh, one of my favorite recent TV moments was when this, this office worker, he's sitting at his desk and he's, he's browsing the internet or something, and, and he sees these little pop-ups coming all over the screen. And there are ads for different, different things. And, and he calls over a, a co-worker and he says, what, what's going on here on my, on my screen? I'm just trying to do some research here. And all of a sudden there's an ad for this and an ad for that and an ad for this. And you know, the funny thing is, all these ads are things that I actually want. What's the deal? And the co-worker says, you don't know about cookies? You don't know what, not the kind you eat. I mean, these cookies that companies are actually tracking your information, the things that you click on, and they're searching. Is there something that we can market to this guy? Is there some ad that will be tailor-made for this person? And without saying a word, he unplugs his computer and throws it in the dumpster. (laughs) Because he felt violated. His privacy had been invaded. He didn't want that. He didn't want anyone secretly watching him and looking for some type of angle for how to get into his life and, 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 and manipulate him. And David said that not only did he feel surrounded, but that God actually had his hand upon him. Nothing's more comforting, right, than feeling the long arm of the law just gently resting on your shoulder, right? Not a great feeling. When someone says, I'm watching you. That's not a comforting thing either, is it? We know that they're not watching us so that they can just give us stickers for every good thing that we do, right? They're watching us. They're letting us know that, hey man, I am going to rat you out as soon as I find any little wrong thing that you do. And so we look at those people and we go, oh, get away from me, you creep. Remember Genesis 2.25, Adam and Eve. It says, the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. They had nothing to hide. They were completely exposed before God. Not a big deal. But as soon as they disobeyed their creator, we're told in Genesis 3.7, the eyes of both were opened. 
And they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They hid because for the first time in their lives, they had something to hide. You know, some things we hide today because we know that there are evil people out there who are trying to get us, but other things we hide to conceal the evil that we know is in our very hearts. And that's what's going on with Adam and Eve here. That's, that's what creates distance in our relationships. That's what prevents unity in marriage. It's what discourages trust and breeds suspicion and creates division. We think we can hide the dark things of our lives, but the reality is we're wrong. If we, if we read God's Word at all, we realize very quickly we are wrong. Jeremiah 17 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And so no amount of hiding, no attention to detail, no vigilance in covering up our tracks can keep us from the all-seeing all-knowing eye of God. I mean, he knew that Achan had taken some of the devoted things from Jericho and hid them under his tent. Despite all his efforts to cover up the affair that he had with Bathsheba, God knew that David had done what he did and God was not going to let it go. As he sat across the table with his closest friends, Jesus knew the evil that was stirring in Judah's heart. Jesus also read the critical uh, minds of the Pharisees. And two times in Luke, we, we see that. Luke 5.22 and Luke 6.8. And God's Holy Spirit revealed to Peter the deception that Ananias and Sapphira tried to pull in making everyone think that they were more generous than they really were. The point is, no matter how hard you try, you can't hide from God. Every action, every word, Every stroke of the keyboard, every click of the mouse, every thought, every intention of the heart is exposed before him. Cardinal Richelieu, he was a French clergyman and a statesman, he said this, If one would give me six lines written by the hand of the most honest man, I would find something in them to have him hanged. In other words, If you look hard enough for it, you're going to find the bad. But the reality is, God doesn't have to look. It's all just laid bare before him. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of the soul and the spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It says, No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. We're all exposed. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 2, Nothing's covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And we've all seen it this past week. As over 30 million people have had their Ashley Madison accounts hacked and exposed to the world. And if you don't know what Ashley Madison is, it is the website that 
that enables, that helps, that aids married couples to have affairs. In a post on his Christianity Today blog, Ed Stetzer estimates that as many as 400 pastors, deacons, elders, church staff members may resign this morning after their names surfaced on the list of users. That's happening right now. Right now. Everything that you do is coron deo. It's before the face of God. And that's a little intimidating, isn't it? I can remember early on when I first began ministry as a junior high intern, and I was, I was teaching my, my junior high class about 40 students, and the youth pastor, my boss, came in, and he sat in the very back of the room with dark sunglasses on and a clipboard, taking notes on everything that I said. And man, was I intimidated. What if he caught me in something? What if I said something I shouldn't have said? Or what if I didn't say something that I should have said? What's he going to do? Is he going to lecture me? Is he going to fire me? I was a little intimidated, but you know, it's one thing to be intimidated by someone who has some power over you, and it's another thing to be intimidated by the all-powerful God and creator of all things. Jesus continues in Luke 12, verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you you whom to fear. Fear him who has killed and has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In the timeless words of Johnny Cash, go tell that long-tongued liar, Go tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, tell him that God's going to cut him down. You can run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. David knew that there was no escaping God's knowledge of him. You can't. How can you escape the one who knows everything at all times? You just can't. But you know what's striking about David is that his response is not terror, but it's amazement. He's amazed. Look at verse 6 here. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's, It's high. I can't attain to it. David is overwhelmed by God's ability to know everything. Charles Spurgeon captures it this way when he writes, In God's remembrance are stored not only the transactions of this world, but of all the worlds in the universe. Not only of the events of the 6,000 years which has passed since the earth was created, but of the duration without beginning. Nay, things to come extending to a duration without end are also before him. He writes, An eternity past." And an eternity to come are at the same moment in his eye. And with that eternal eye, he surveys infinity. And Spurgeon says, how amazing. How incredible. This is unreal. And that's David's response too. God's knowledge of me is incredible. Not only did David understand that he couldn't escape God's knowledge of him, he also understood another thing. He understood that he could not escape God's presence. He 
couldn't escape God's presence. God was with him everywhere. Look at verse 7 of Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is, a, is as light with you. The question is simple. Is there anywhere that I can go from you? Is there any way I can get away from you? And David says, no, I can't. I can't go anywhere because God's not limited by time and space. He says, if I go up to heaven, if I go to the place of light and life, you're there. If I go down to Sheol, the the Hebrew word for the realm of the dead, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, in other words, if I go as far east as I can to where that sun rises, or, or if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, if I go as far west as I could possibly go, the Jewish people, they weren't known for being amazing seamen, but David's trust that even in that unfamiliar, dangerous place to the west, that God will lead him and he'll uphold him. Finally, he says, even the darkness can't keep you from me. Introverts might read these words and just be a little, have that little feeling of claustrophobia. This is a little too close. That thought of never being able to get away, of always being on, of having no sense of personal space whatsoever, that can be a bit unnerving. Have you ever had a roommate that felt more like a foreign occupying power than a friend, right? And for those who have reason to want to escape God's presence, this certainly wouldn't feel good. Jonah was a man who traveled to the ends of the earth to escape God's mission for his life. But very quickly, he realized you can't escape God. But you know, there's a third response here. To some people, God's presence is actually a comforting one. Having him near brings this sense of protection, of care, of encouragement. The reminder that that God's limitless resources are at my disposal. And that's what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 28, 20, when he said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He was saying that to remind his followers he wasn't going to abandon them. On the contrary, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to care for you. I've given you a mission, but I'm going to be right there. Isaiah 41 says this, Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And this is exactly where David was at. Remember the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For you are with me. So to some, the thought of God's inescapable presence is this incredible negative. I don't want it. He's near me. I can't get away. How am I supposed to escape? I can't. And to others, it's this incredible positive. What makes the difference? 
Why is it that some don't want it and some can't get enough of it? The difference is the gospel. And this, the difference is whether or not you've embraced it. The prophet Isaiah tells of a moment in his life where he found himself catapulted into the throne room of God. He writes this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe it filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah says, The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! I'm lost! I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Do you see how Isaiah reacted here? The sudden awareness that he was in the presence of the all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect God. He cries out, woe is me. This was a moment of extreme distress to all at once be in the presence of blinding perfection, contrasting so starkly with his pathetic attempts at goodness and the abysmal sight of his imperfections. That was horror-inducing. It's the same for us. Because no matter how good you think you are, no matter how much you've convinced yourself that God is somehow impressed with your efforts, no matter how moral you come out looking when you compare yourself to people all around you, if the reality of God's presence was all of a sudden revealed to you, you'd be in absolute shock of His splendor. And at the same time, completely terrified at the realization of your sin. That's what Isaiah saw. He cried, woe is me. I'm lost. A man of unclean lips. R.C. Sproul writes this. In comparison to the Almighty, Isaiah realized his holiness was nothing. He understood his righteousness before other men, and he also understood it was nothing before the absolute perfection of God himself. Even our best deeds, he later writes, are more like polluted garments. In the presence of God's holiness, imperfect people, they just they cower in fear because God is just and he cannot let sin go. But notice what God does for Isaiah in verse 6. Isaiah 6.6. 6. Says, Isaiah writes this, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Notice God doesn't send the angel over to pat Isaiah on the back and say, you know what, it's all, it's all right. You're, 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 you're a little panicked, I realize that. You're a man of unclean clean lips, but you know there are worse things out there. It's not that bad, it's okay. Look at all the good you have to offer, Isaiah. I mean, if we put, put your, your sins here and, and your good deeds here on the cosmic scales, look, they just outweigh and your sins aren't really that big a deal. He doesn't do that. He doesn't excuse sin. He doesn't brush it off like it's no big deal. Instead, he deals with it. In one swift stroke, 
God has Isaiah's sins taken away. He has them paid for and completely removed so that Isaiah no longer has to fear the presence of God. He no longer has to resist that urge to flee from God. Now he's at home. Now he's at peace in the presence of God. And that's exactly what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And that's why we gather together here. And that's why we worship because God has done an incredible thing. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God. While we were, we were still on the run. We were terrified at the thought of God's presence. That's when Christ died for us. I love how the New Living Translation captures the next few verses. Since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, He will certainly save us from God's judgment. For since we were restored to friendship with God by the death of His Son, while we were still His enemies, we will certainly be delivered from eternal punishment by His life. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God all because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us in making us friends with God. By trusting in what Christ has done on the cross in paying for every single one of our sins, taking them upon Himself and dying the death that we should have died. By trusting in that, we can be washed clean. The stains are removed. And we can now stand in confidence because we're now covered in Christ's righteousness and His presence is no longer something to fear. No longer something to run from. Not that you could get away from it anyways. Instead, it's something wonderful to be desired, to be cherished, to be in God's presence. It's it's to be in the midst of His goodness. It's to know that His limitless love is yours. To experience the incredible peace that comes from trusting that He'll supply all your needs. And all of this is enhanced by what David tells us next. So David knew he couldn't escape God's knowledge of him. He knew that he couldn't escape God's presence. He also knew he couldn't escape God's power and God's sovereignty. Look at verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. See, God's interest in David, it wasn't limited to just God's limitless knowledge or God's uh, inescapable presence. It goes far beyond that. It goes to the joining and the multiplication of David's very first cells. It was only by, by God's intentional and powerful will that David even came to be. Even in the place where no one else could see. There were no ultrasounds. There were no x-rays during that day. Even even before his mother was aware that anything was going on inside of her body, God was at work doing exactly what he wanted to do in forming David and preparing him for his purposes. You know, it's easy to look at ourselves in the mirror or on a report card or on an annual review and just to be critical of who we are. 
But David looked at himself and saw this masterful handiwork of the Creator. He's so blown away, he can't hold it inside of himself. Verse 14, I praise you. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And it's not that David was some type of super beautiful, super awesome model person that would be on magazine covers or on websites. I think he's just like us. Blemishes and all. But he recognized that who he was was the result of an extremely powerful, detailed, creative being. And not only did God meticulously create him, he ordained his days even before he was born. Verse 16, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. See, God is the author and sustainer of life. He's the one who determined that David would be male versus female. How he would look. What kind of gifts he would have. What kind of abilities he would have. How many days he would live on the earth. We like to think that we're the keepers of our own destiny. Or that we have some level of mastery over our existence or personal identity. We've heard from a very young age that we can be whatever we want to be, and we've been told to follow your dreams no matter what the cost, no matter what anyone else tells you. But the reality is that God is the one who makes us who we are and is the keeper of our beginning and our end and who we are in between. We can try to fight it by changing our appearance. We can try to be someone that we're not. We can do the very best to make it look like we're in control, but even when it comes down to the very core of who we are, we lie completely exposed before God. There's no escape. Privacy is an illusion. You can't even hide who you are. So what do you do? How do you respond to all of this? This realization that you're completely exposed. David knew he couldn't hide and he couldn't get away with it. His very existence was not only determined by God, it was dependent on God. That moved him to respond in three ways. And let's just look at them real quickly this morning. If we follow in David's footsteps, our first response will be to worship It'll be to worship the one who deserves worship. We'll fall on our knees. We'll praise God for who he really is. We'll see his complete mastery over our existence. We'll acknowledge and turn from our sad, pride-driven attempts to say that we're our own masters. And we'll be in awe of his love for us and the thoughtful attention he gives to our lives. So David says in Psalm 139, 17, how precious how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I'd, if I would count them, they're more than the sand. First response is worship. I'll praise you. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The second response is this. To align yourself. To align your desires with his. Our desire, our desire will be to discover and love the things that God loves. And to hate the things that God hates. Look at what David wrote in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. 
And at first glance, it looks like David has some type of personal vendetta, and he just wants to use God as kind of his hitman to go take out all the people that he doesn't like in the world, people who are his enemies, people who he doesn't approve of. It's kind of like the homeowner who has people, you know, walking on his lawn, and he gets his dog out and says, hey, hey, sick him, sick him, get him, get him, get him, I don't want him there. But a careful look reveals something very different. It's not actually a cry for personal vengeance. Look at, look at the wording here. Notice that it's all about God. David says, they speak against you. Your enemies take your name in vain. He says, those who hate you, those who rise up against you, I count my enemies. See, David's not contracting a killer here. He's making, he's making a pledge of allegiance here. In a sense, David is laying down his flag. The flag that, that he once wove around and said, this is all about me, this life is all about me, and anyone who offends me or irritates me, I'm coming after, I'm going to defend my honor. And David says, oh, this isn't about me anymore. It's all about God. He's the one who created me. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. He's my master. And he lays down that flag, and he picks up God's flag and says, I'm all about you. I want to be all about what you're about. I want to love the things that you love. I want to, I want to, I want to dislike the things that you dislike. He's saying, Lord, your honor, your glory matter more to me than anything. I long for the day when all opposition and everything that's an affront to your great name, it'll just be brought to justice. I long for that day, Lord, because you are the most important. He's aligned his desires with God. When we come to grips with the fact that we're completely exposed before a holy God, we, we worship. We worship him for who he is, what he's done for us. And we align ourselves with him, begin to love the things that he loves And finally, our response should be to cleanse, to cleanse ourselves of anything inside that remains in opposition to God. Look at what David says. This is how he ends. And often when you end with something, it's the one thing you want people to remember. It's the most important. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way ever lasting. God, I want you to look at me and see if there's anything wrong in me. It's not about all these other people here. It's not about me just pointing the finger at everybody here and saying, go get them. Go, go beat them up. Go take care of them. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Lord, look at me because I know there's stuff inside of here that is not, not favorable towards you. And realize, this isn't a subjective exercise here. It's not just a looking inward. It's not about looking inside of ourselves and finding our own truth. It's not about being yourself and finding inner peace. It's about searching God's revealed word. It's about looking into this and taking a hard, honest look to see if there's anything in us that needs to go, that needs to change. is who you think you are and the beliefs that are foundational to how you live your life. Is that from God or is it from something or somewhere else? Are you listening to what people all around are telling you to be or are you humbly seeking the one who knit you together in your mother's womb?
Search me, O God. Know my heart. This is the ultimate acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. It's a willful relinquishment of what we think and want. And it's a conscious submission to God's will. It's a stepping off of the throne and recognizing and submitting to God's power, His authority, His absolute right to our lives. It's the clay pot saying to the potter, here I am. Let me be what you created me to be and use me for your purposes alone. Privacy is an illusion. Each and every one of us lies completely exposed before God. We can't escape his knowledge. We can't escape his presence. We can't escape his power and sovereignty. So in light of that, let's be people who worship him with all we've got. Let's be people who align our desires with his. And let's be people who seek to cleanse ourselves of anything that remains in opposition to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, reading this passage is is humbling. It forces us to come to grips with the fact that we are not the inventors of ourselves. We aren't God. The rights that we so often think we have, the privacy that we think we deserve, we don't. And we don't have it. We're completely exposed before you. I pray, Lord, that you would search our hearts. That you would make known to us where change needs to happen. That you would bring us to the point where we are in incredible awe of who you are. And so thankful for the fact that we can stand in your presence, not because of our own merit, our own goodness. We can stand here only because the blood of Jesus Christ has washed us clean. And Lord, I pray as we leave this place today that we would exemplify that humility, that we would live it out, and that when people see us, they might think nothing of us, but that they might be in awe of the one who knit us together, the one who is caring for us, loving us, the one who is in absolute control of all of this. Lord, I pray that as we go, we would be lights, people who point to your greatness and your greatness alone. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.